Hello, I'm your host, Jim McLean. Welcome to the latest edition of the Banderflix podcast. So I'm joined now by director, writer, producer Margaret McGoldrick. As a producer, her back catalogue includes Hostage to the Devil and Braxton Butcher, which is going to be screened here at the Strand Arts Centre on Cinema Day next week. And as a writer, director, her work includes the shorts Before Tomorrow and Waiting Game. So hello to you, Margaret. Hi. Margaret, we're going to be exploring your cinematic psyche. These are our eight little questions. You are second victim after Brian Mulholland last month. And as I always say, we, we know kind of where we're going to start but we'll see kind of where we end, and we'll get straight in. So my first question, and this is kind of just getting a general idea of you, what are kind of your earliest cinematic memories? Yeah, that one actually stumped me a bit, because the earliest film that I remember is definitely not the first time I was in cinema. Uh, the early, One of the earliest that I remember is actually Star Wars Episode One. I think the reason I remember is because my dad hates going to the cinema, but he took me to see it. So in hindsight, I always felt a bit bad for him, knowing now I doesn't quite live up to was he a huge star wars fan i wouldn't say huge but he's claustrophobic he doesn't go to the cinema so he went to the cinema for star wars so that in itself was something did Um, you feel bad because and maybe he went for you to take you to the cinema to see that and and endured that claustrophobic experience for the phantom menace no i don't think he went for me (laughs) i don't think that was for me if it was for me it probably would have been something else because i think that was my first star wars movie so I didn't hate it as much as everyone else did on first viewing. Um, but that was 1999 and that was just, there's no way that was my first. It was a different time, Margaret. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there, I, th- I think that's the earliest that I remember in the cinema. Yeah. Okay, and, and then that leads me into, I know we're here at the Strand Arts Centre. And I know Braxton Butcher is going to be screened here next week. But for you, where were the cinemas you spent your youth where were the cinemas? And I also, because of Brian, I threw this in last time, you know, the video stores. Where were those places that you hung out whenever you were younger? Um, Glen Gormley Cinema, the, uh, as part of the movie house chain, that was that was the closest cinema to me. So, I mean, I my summers were pretty much in there. Um, for video chain storage, that's actually really easy. My mum worked in Extra Vision. Oh, no way, your mum worked in Extra Vision? Yeah. Um, I got lots of books and movies when I was a kid, so it's my parents' fault that, that I got into movies. But as in, are you talking like books from extra, like movie books? No, or, oh, no. Sorry. But like just between they, they all got me stories constantly, like novels, and then so between that and constantly um, abusing my mum staff allowance in extra vision, it was kind of a given that I was going to go. <laughs> there was a narrow field of choice for career. Um, but yeah, because I always remember mum had an allowance. You could get five movies a month. Um. But you couldn't get a new release until it was over 28 days, which really annoyed me. But obviously she was like, I'm not going to pay for that, which I understand now. But at the time I was very impatient. So when, so I would literally be counting down for those new releases when they were coming. Um, her staff allowance was my staff allowance. You're such a user. Yeah. You're such a user. But I, I mean, I loved Activision and I remember kind of, I have this vivid memory, you know, it's on a podcast, you know, unfortunately if the police want to come get me, you kind of, I stole several cardboard standees from Extravision on Lisburn Road. I'd love to say when I was really young, but I was at university. For some apparent reason, <laughs> I stole Lilo and Stitch from the Lisburn Road Extravision. I don't... Because I, I, I really like Stitch. Okay. I, I don't know, Margaret. It's it's a weird thing. It was a student thing. What can I say? But then I'm kind of intrigued then for that. Like, I know we're talking about those. Did you end up with any weird kind of stuff from the store back at home? 
I still have a copy of Fight Club in the original Extra Vision cover. I don't oh, know why. Oh, is that like the big, like kind of oversized kind of like the box? It was the, the small DVD, like the small green cover. Um, it's Immer. I don't know why we have it. I think they might have had like an extra because they chased you when you didn't give stuff back. And I think they had extra that they were getting rid of. And um, my mom took one and yeah, or, or else she stole it. Uh, but I have it now. Um, no cardboard cutouts. Definitely got a couple of posters. Um, but yeah, nothing too bizarre. No, I think there was probably was a couple of more like movie fanatics who like, worked in the store who got their hands on things first. There was me hoping just for someone who could be a partner in crime. No, you know, sorry. You know, bringing bringing it now. I mean, if we want, to even you've kind of hinted there when you were but younger, you preferred cinema. But even now, do you have like a preferred cinema that you will go purposely for your new releases or just kind of whenever you go to the cinema? Mainly York it. Not for their new releases. Free parking. That's so handy. Yes, that's definitely a factor. No, me and my sister have built up this thing over the last, I think, four years at least now, where we go around and she reenacts all the posters. So you can literally see like an evolution of, of just her getting older, really, actually, um, through our pictures. And Jim McMorrow, very kindly, uh, for my... Christmas present this year um, actually made a book he went and he pulled down all the photographs of us in the cinema <laughs> reenacting all these posters um, so now I have like a, an actual hard hardback book but York it has the best selection tell me I mean how did that start the reenactment of, of the posters was it just kind of per chance I don't know there was just I don't know what prompted it but now it's a thing uh, we went to the cinema last night and it was a nightmare trying to get tickets to a movie that wasn't sold out that we did, weren't able to do it because um, we literally it was the third time lucky to get in to see a movie and we ended up seeing Christopher Robin not wouldn't massively I haven't seen it yet but I, I want from the poster and from the film I want it to be a film that makes me believe again I, you, you've seen it I haven't um, stick with the poster <laughs> sorry <laughs> hard-hitting review um but no i mean we it's been quite funny doing it she gets really embarrassed at the start five posters in she's leaping in front of some some poster or she's trying to hang off actually the funny one of the recent ones that was quite funny was um jim mcmorrow was there uh and there was a halloween poster but it was quite high up in the wall and it's the one of just michael's mask and the problem is that if i just take a picture underneath or of her standing underneath, it didn't really make sense. So suddenly Jim, being quite a tall man, is lifting Amy up in the air. She's climbing up him. Um, I think four drops later, they finally got her face beside the Michael poster. So it's a team effort now. That's commitment to the cause. So it's not even just one poster a night. It's kind of like a, a, a collection of posters. Oh, as, many as, we can, as many as we can do. It's really annoying. You actually, we've now noticed that there are traits between the posters. You will see... You will go and there's maybe one good poster and the rest of them are all like landscapes. You can't reenact a landscape. It's, it's no good. So, uh, so yeah, no, as many as we can get in. That's true. As I say, that is that is commitment. And uh, which which kind of brings me in, you know, you, as I said, we've talked about your back catalogue there in the introduction. But did, did you have like a, a film, an actor, a director, anything that made you kind of when you were sitting either in the cinema or at home watching said, I want to get into the film industry. Did you have, what I'm, the basic is this, did you have that moment? That's what I want to do. That's a hard question. I don't think that I had a defining moment of that's what I want to do, but there were certain 
there would be certain people, whether it was actors or directors, storytellers, that I would have got very excited for. Um, as a kid, loved Robin Williams. Um, the day that I discovered that Robin Williams was the genie in Aladdin was a glorious day. Um, as I got older, uh, I mean, there was certain... It was actually it was another lovely discovery. There were certain things that I loved by Aaron Sorkin. I didn't know he was the common denominator, so it was a nice to have that umbrella. Um, yeah, I mean, then as I've got older, there's just there's things that I think now that I work more in film, um, because you're aware of so much more. There's a lot more you maybe appreciate. So I'll get excited about things from Danny Boyle or. Um, well, Danny Boyle visually and is creatively is just fantastic, but by the same um, token, but in a different way, I love Rob Reiner because he's so story driven. So yeah, it's just um, different elements from different people behind the screen. I know Bran was talking about this the last time when we were doing this little feature, and he kind of said, you know, this idea that you shouldn't really be watching a film technically, you know. But I'm I'm always intrigued by this. I'm a critic, and I'm firmly a critic. And it's taken me a while to finally come out and accept. And, you know, it's, it's a kind of weird thing to say. This thing, well, I am a critic, that's what I do. But I have no real kind of desire to sit down and, and make a film. You, you have, and you have done that. So I'm intrigued then when Brian mentioned that. For you now who's done that, do you still let yourself lose yourself in the moment? Or do you still find yourself kind of looking at things with a maybe technical mindset? Or even as a producer, with a, with, with a producer's head on? I think it's a bit of both. It doesn't jar with me to notice things. Uh, it really takes a lot for me to hate a film, to not like it. So um, I can get away with noticing. It's like, oh, that job was really nice. Or, God, that's really impressive location, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really pull me out as much. Um, I understand with what Brian's saying. I remember, I can't remember who it was, but I was reading some interview years ago about um, this composer. And they were saying, you know, I never want you to, to notice my work. Because then I'm standing out from the story and from the film which at the time made complete sense. But by the same token, I think the score in Dunkirk is absolutely phenomenal and, you know, it makes you feel that tension. So, you know, acknowledging that isn't a bad thing either. I think it just it, it just depends. It varies. I think it's near impossible to not notice a Hans Zimmer score. I, yep. think, I think it's literally one of the things, you know, I love, I am a Hans Zimmer fan. I've seen him live. And it's one of those things where you just can't you know some of the scores like you think of the stuff in the dark night it is so booming and loud and bombastic that it's impossible not to notice it but i've also then looked at those scenes when those scores are removed and it's a completely different viewing experience and i don't think i don't think they've done it with dunkirk i know they've definitely done it with the dark night stuff i'm not sure what the youtube channel is they remove the scores and as i say it, it changes the whole thing completely no i'd agree i mean it's not just the the score that's just one example of the score um i mean i was doing a, a breakdown for a pitch recently and i went on to every frame of painting the youtube channel mm-hmm. which i'm gutted isn't still um they're not still making uh videos anymore because they're just brilliant the eye that they have and the detail that they capture when you know this director does this this editor does this and they highlight things that suddenly you're like okay one you're right, that's a trait of that director too. I completely see what they're doing there, even though I didn't notice in the viewing. And three, God, that's really clever. Here's how I can, you know, implement it. Um, so even though you notice one or two things, I think there's always so much more that most of the time you still need to point it out. You're talking there about little things to point out. And this is kind of brings me on next to my next question, which of course is, do you have a moment in cinema that you can, or a moment from a film that you just consider to be cinematic perfection? Yeah, that one was really tricky. Like, is there a moment from Christopher Robin? 
that has this moment of cinematic perfection for you? No. Got it. I'm. It's got Eeyore and it's got Winnie the Pooh. You, Do you know? know, in all honesty, you see if the movie was just about Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore, those characters, the actors would be flying. I would so happily watch it. It's the humans in our crap. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Winnie I, the Pooh's awesome. I love Winnie the Pooh. Eeyore I, is de- as depressed as ever, but in that lovable Eeyore way. I just wanted to because I mean, I, I went in and watched Goodbye Christopher Robin. Um, I think it was like last year. And that film, it, that. it's that idea of kind of, of dealing with the character I love and, and trying to do what it did. And it ended up making me almost hate the creator of Winnie the Pooh. And this I wanted, because this is kind of a fictionalised sequel to the animated series. And I, Margaret, I, I want this to be a film that is like a warm hug. And you're not selling it to me. But, you know, we're kind of going off on a tangent. So, so I've given you a bit of time to thought with my little Winnie the Pooh ramble. But do you have a moment or, or a couple that you consider to be, for you, cinematic perfection? It's really tricky because I think it sort of weighs up on how you define cinematic perfection. For me, it kind of always comes to the story and the emotion. It has to be about the emotion. There's a couple, I mean, I was saying about Dunkirk. Dunkirk's phenomenal, but the bit that gets me, I've seen it, I think, four or five times now. I saw it three times in the cinema. Um, was when the two guys are on the train at the end and the score stops. Mm. I realised every time I literally just let out a big sigh. I felt like a weight had been taken off my shoulders and I was like, God, you made me feel like that for an hour and a half. And Even I though it's Harry from One Direction? I, I, I stand by it. He was, he was actually pretty good in the movie. Yeah, I'm only saying that in jest. <laughs> I have to, the moment in Dunkirk that always gets me, I mean always gets me, and I've seen it, I've seen it three times as well. I've seen it on 35mm, I've seen it on DCP, and I've seen it in 70mm down at Dublin. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just that moment... And it kind of proves how simple cinema can be sometimes. And I know at, at the same time it's got the Hans Zimmer score and all that. It's it's the scene with the boats arriving, but it's not the boats arriving themselves. It's Sir Kenneth. It will always be Sir Kenneth here in Banterflix. Sir Ken's reaction. It's kind of like that idea that Spielberg does. Spielberg shows reaction really, really well. Like, I mean, when you think of Jurassic Park, you know, before he shows you the dinosaurs, he shows you somebody else reacting to them. So you know how to react. But it's so simple. It's... Just kind of, he's just looking out to the sea. He sees the boats. It's just a lovely, lovely scene. Did you not think that he was kind of the clue for every time something bad was going to happen in Dunkirk? It's like he's looked up at the sky. Something's about to drop. <laughs> like, I love the movie and I love Ken, but did you not think that there was a? No, did I? Am I reckon? Well, I stay away from you Ken know, and Christopher Robin. Christopher Robin and now Dunkirk. I I, I, I I love Dunkirk. I love Dunkirk. And I saw, I mean, that's the thing. I saw it, uh, same DCP, 35 and 70 mil down in Dublin. Um, but it's, you know what? Then I watched it recently, um, about two weeks ago on DVD. It really didn't make a difference, actually, what, what format I watched it in. Did you not find it a different experience? I know definitely for me, between the DCP and the 35mm and the 70mm, the 70mm and the 35mm, it's a moving image and it's kind of like some, like I don't know what, where you seen it in Belfast in 35mm? I know it, even though it was a new print, it was already a little bit battered and kind of there was marks here and there, but it felt like watching an old-time war film while watching it on digital, DCP, it just felt, while it was still good, it just, for me, felt like just, you know, another action movie. No, I was just, I was engrossed. Made no difference to me whatsoever. That's where I'm saying, though, I think for me it's story. I mean, because uh, I was thinking about other free movies earlier, and another one was uh, La La Land. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of all the recent ones. But just it was just so brilliantly crafted. That opening sequence, you don't need 
I don't really think you need to be a big musical fan to just if you just really think about what it takes to just have this big insane epic dance and how they maneuvered all that um right down to you know the colors that they sort of bleed through the film the way it all um the way it transitions like there's just so much detail I think that's a real cinematic experience um it's a bit of a shame though because I don't know I I, I think being in the cinema is still an event. Mm-hmm. I will always try and watch the movie in the cinema first. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's a bit annoying when it doesn't live up the same way um, when you watch it on TV at home. Um, trying to think what else. Just on that note, like the the film that for me sums up what you're saying is, is Gravity. It was out a few years ago, won the Oscar. I seen it in the cinema and even though it was a 3D film and regular listeners will know I'm not a fan of the 3D format. I, I'm just not a fan of Pokey Pokey 3D. That film worked for me. Uh, I think it was last Christmas I remember watching it at home on TV and just find it so flat and so it, like when I watch it in the cinema it was a thrill ride and you know, I know that sounds like I'm being OTT but it really really was you were kind of literally thrown into space with Sandra Bullock and trying to see her make her way back home but when I watched it at home on the smaller screen I just find it so dull and I don't even want to say it but I have to be honest, just while I'm on that note, maybe even Mad Max. Mad Max Fury Road was something you had to see in all its bombastic nonsense in the cinema on the biggest screen with the loudest sound system. I haven't actually watched Mad Max at home and now I'm a bit worried too because I know what you mean. I think it's you're sitting in front of this you know, screen that's how many times the size of you uh, in a dark room. The sound is all isolated to just the film sound really. Um, and then at home it's distractions and there's light coming from elsewhere and it's it's more of a distracting experience so it's never going to quite match up um i think those movies like gravity i mean i i despise 3d i just i didn't see it in 3d um i mean but gravity is set in space it's dark you're sitting in this massive dark room and it sort of all just bleeds in together so i think that also you know i if you're sitting at home pull the curtains and turn off all the lights and put your phone in airplane mode i think you need to treat it like a cinema to really enjoy it yeah, I think you have. I mean, I've started now when I go to the cinema, I leave my phone in the car. Generally, it's because it's just kind of, even if a film's not grabbing me, I know if I had my phone, I'll maybe go, oh, I'll check my emails, I'll check this or check that. But now I just go, if I just leave it, it's like, right, that time is my own and I can sit and watch this. And I don't get that when I'm at home. I don't get that even when I'm watching stuff on Netflix. And I know we're going to be coming back to Netflix at some point later on. You don't get that because you're not completely disengaged. And it's also a lovely thing to be able to sit in a cinema. And if you can get a, a screening that's full, if it's a comedy, to hear laughing within a, if you're watching a horror film. You know, I remember watching Ghost Stories this year at the Odeon. And it's just great when you're watching, you're there with an audience and listening to a group of people get scared. This is an expletive rating podcast, getting scared shitless. I lo- I, that's what I always love. It's a communal experience at its best. But, you know, it's also a very personal thing at the same time as well. I think it depends on the pacing of the film I think that's why Dunkirk was great for me because I've even though I watched it at home a few weeks ago it still held I still really enjoyed it it held up the others I was watching with um you know it's, they stayed with it as well people even my mom sort of came in and so all of a sudden you know she'd been out on the phone earlier and now she was watching the rest of the movie quite mm. engrossed and it's because it's constantly moving and actually that was the other one um, I was thinking about I love Danny Boyle I just think he's superb I'm gutted he's not doing the next James Bond because that would have been phenomenal um, but Steve Jobs Steve Jobs is that is a cinematic masterpiece start to finish oh, we're going to be friends Margaret good good <laughs> we might pass Christopher Robin it's Tony Boyle um, no I mean it's it's interesting because 
visually it's so creative and experimental you know but as a story it's a very very clear and strict three-act structure you know they have three decades there are well across his life they take three iconic moments um across three different decades they shoot it in three different ways and you know it just but it all works amazingly so it does and i think like just that complexity uh, you know nolan's complex at the best of times but um he weaves it all into a story and he knows exactly what he's doing but Danny Boyle's doing that well with in that case you know he obviously he didn't write the story but um that's story filtering straight into visually just how creative you can get and I thought that was just that was a perfect uh, combination there yeah I, I mean I'm on record I love Steve Jobs I seen it in London at the festival year I was it was the first actually time I was over at London as I said at the time it doesn't ask you to like Steve Jobs it kind of says he's a bit of a bastard really but it kind of sits back and has a lot of admiration for what he does but on a technical level sorry Brian you've kind of touched on it those kind of three-act structure the way each each of those acts was shot differently like it's it's almost could have been done as a stage play could have been but the scene I just love the little scene with Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet and they're just walking along it's the second act they're talking about a, a missile that was sent into space and it's just this great it's a mix of Visual, score, performances. As I sat there, I just sat with a stupid big grin on myself. And what I loved the most about the film, I'm rambling now, was the fact that it was such a different mix. So many people wanted another David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin combination. That originally was going to what was happened, but Danny Boyle brought something completely different. And I think that's why maybe, if I'm honest, Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut left me a little flat. I think, you know, writer-directors, we'll come back to this, writer-directors can be that little bit more precious but every bit of dialogue where I think uh, someone else coming into your work and say, right, we can cut this, cut this, cut that. You don't need this. You can say less with so much more. And that's why, I, you know, I'm, I'm on record. That's why I said we're going to be friends. I, I love Steve Jobs. I've talked about it in the past. But we will not sit and talk about Steve Jobs for the rest of this podcast. Let's bring it back to you personally so tell me about you know because I was looking now this is going through IMDB Margaret so whether IMDB lies or not you kind of started out you were producing first then you kind of stepped into writing and directing so I'm interested from that perspective what was the first project you got involved in I suppose firstly as a a, a producing capacity I think the first one that I got involved in was uh, called Rescue Blues which was a short film that was written and directed by Leo McGuigan. Um, Leo, who's the direct, writer-director of Braxton. Um, yeah, Leo, I'd met Leo on set of one of Aidan Largie's shoots, and um, I think we bonded over Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> amongst other things. Aaron Sorkin and Scream, hence our first feature being a slasher, of course. Uh, that was literally what we wanted over and then he was talking to me about some project and I said oh send me that I'd love to read it and he sent me the script for Rescue Blues and I think Leo was about 16 at the time and um, it was interesting because it really plays with various timelines and then brings them all back together at the end it was quite complex in that sense and it wasn't what you were seeing a lot of um, new filmmakers going out and making Um, but I loved the script and I just remember writing back saying well we have to make this so it wasn't even really a case of I wanted to be a producer. He wanted, well, I think at that point he did want to be a director, but it was never really a set structure in place for who's doing what role. Um, it was just a case of he wrote the script. It was his script that he wanted to direct. That was fine. 
And so um, how can I help them do it? And so we just started organising and between us we, we produced that. Um, and it just became quite, it was more of a common sense structure. It was like, what do we need? We need actors, we need a location, we need costumes, we need props, blah, blah, blah. And just working through our way through the list. So yeah, that was the first one we'd done. You've you've worked on a few different projects. I know you worked on the survivalist as well. Mm-hmm. I also noticed you were involved in the project with with Morgan Freeman, that was here. Yes, he was here for me. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, of course you're going to say that. <laughs> um, I didn't even know that was on IMDb. Yeah, he was here. Um, his company, they were doing a TV show. Um, I think it was for National Geographic, and um, they were going to cities, uh, different cities of conflict. Um, so they'd been traveling through America. I think they were in a couple in Europe, and then of course they were going to Belfast. I, apparently, of Belfast. Course. I think Belfast got was like one of the highest viewings. Mm. So it was. Um, so yeah, uh, yes, we were out with Morgan Freeman for a couple of days, with the general public trying to catch him. Thanks to I think, Cool FM and mm. Q Radio and Belfast Live saying get a photo with, with, you know, of Morgan Freeman and we'll send you this. And it was like, please, guys, stop this. Um, Why did you not get a photo with him and then get that free stuff? He doesn't take photos of people. He has a bodyguard who a few people tried to take photographs. Like, they would stand in front and try and take a selfie with Morgan Freeman in the back. And the bodyguard just every time just slips into place and blocks him out. You can't get a photograph with him. Um, no, he's a quiet man. He kept to himself, so he did on, the, on that one. How, from, from your memories, how did he find Belfast? I th- I think grand. I mean, to be honest, we were too busy sort of running around um, and just working on the job at the time. So you didn't take him to the Crown, you know, didn't take him to an evening at like Thompson's, you know, Lavery's, anything like that? We shot in the Crown. Okay. So, um, but he actually, he was he was conducting interviews. Um, so he had people from either side of the community, mm-hmm. uh, but those who had, who had spent years working together to try and bridge um, the gaps, especially over the period of the Troubles. So he had, we were close to where they lived in East Belfast, and then um, the Crown and then the Peace Walls, which is where a few people tried to jump in for the odd selfie. <laughs> okay, as I say, I just noticed at 9DB, and it was one of those moments where I remember those all that had a kind of hullabaloo about that. But but bringing back, you know, as I say, you started out as British, and then you moved into to writing and directing yourself. Was that always the plan? I know you said you didn't really have a plan, but I mean, that, that working as a producer, was that always kind of in your mind kind of be going to be your gateway in or kind of did that come about kind of by accident? Um, in short, no. It, there was, that was definitely not the plan. When I came out of uni... Um, when you had big ideas and kind of still optimistic about the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I actually wanted to be a writer. I wanted that to be the, the foremost career, really. Um, and I remember, I'd been, I mean, I'd been working with a few people in uni and we'd been doing different projects where it sort of evolved, you know, who was producing and who was doing this, that and the other. And whoever was producing was always stressed to the max. And I was just like, why would anyone want to do that job? And it literally didn't even rank the top 20 of anything that I considered doing. Um, but I did script in uni and I really loved it. Um, so that was kind of, that was the thing that I wanted to do the most. But I remember I was actually on, uh, Aiden was filming a short that he had wrote and um, he was shooting it. He was directing it. And I remember calling down to his house while he was filming it. And it was literally him and two actors. And it was only at that point that I actually sort of clicked, you know what, this, there is a common sense mentality to this. He wrote the script. So he had the story. You know, for that scene, he 
he needed a house. He needed, he needed a room. He shot it in his living room. He got a camera. And he got two actors. And, you know, there wasn't... At that stage, you don't really need to worry. I don't think you should worry too much about we need to have a costume that doesn't have this logo on it. We need to blank out this, this, and this. Because it's really just for you as a filmmaker and it's part of, you know, your learning. So from there on in, that was, I think, then when I met Leo and that just sort of happened. Um, after that... I had done a short film um, a few years ago, which was really stressful. Um, I didn't write it. Um, it was by another guy called Paul Deary, who was, um, was a lovely guy I'd worked with. And he um, he wrote this script. It was based on a couple of women that um, he uh, knew or was related to. Um, I just met these women in a bar. And it was just character-driven. It was very much a Belfast comedy. You know, I don't think it, the humour would have travelled too far. It was pure Belfast. Um, but it made me and a few friends laugh so we did that but it was very much like minimal crew all hands on deck nobody 100% really knowing what they were doing and it was stressful and it wasn't very fun at the time to shoot it I mean I just have to say the people in it like were lovely and really fun to work with um, but I think that after that I took I'd taken a bit of a break from directing and just focused on producing but then I just yeah I still like producing but I'd sort of got fed up making other people's stories only and I just knew that there was a few things that I wanted to do and I knew exactly how I would have shot them. So it got to the point where I would spent, well then why don't I? Which is why I don't wait in game. Yeah. So, yeah. There's there's two things that I want to come away from that. Like, firstly, I mean, when you, you've kind of started in, in, in producing and then when you kind of take on, kind of step behind the director's chair and you're, you're the kind of the person calling the shots, how did that experience as a producer shape you in kind of your approach to filmmaking because surely then it must kind of are you then thinking about well you know logically you know this kind of shoot to do that xyz it's going to be this amount of money i need this 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 here yeah i think so um i think that's that was sort of a given because i was producing first i remember i remember on waiting game we were shooting in conway mill in the boiler room uh the freezing boiling boiler room um <laughs> But there was a gym next door, which we didn't know about. And even though we were doing, you know, it's meant to be a period prison movie. Uh, all of a sudden we have the remix of Bastille pumping through the walls. And Leo, who was producing it with me at the time, Leo and I just looked at each other and we were just like, well, this isn't going to work. And it just became very much, we just took ourselves off to the side and it became a very quick restructure. Right, this is how we're going to shoot this because a lot of, Thankfully, um, there were a lot of shots that didn't require dialogue. Um, it's quite a slow-paced movie um, in that sense. And uh, so we had to sort of rejig scenes last minute. And it sort of just for that, for things like that, I had to throw out the creative head and just be like, right, in order to get this, we need to do A, B, C, D um, in this new order. So there's elements like that. Also then just for cost, you know, I think I've had a, I have a good idea. It's maybe finding a compromise sometimes between what you want to do creatively and what you can actually afford to do. So I think producing has helped that. But also just producing, I've worked with other talented directors, so you learn a lot just, you know, from the people around you. And then that brings back, because you mentioned you, you had plans to write. And I know you have, you have written um, for, you have written shorts. I know I mentioned this to Brian and I was kind of trying to kind of get to the bottom of Brian's approach to writing. So what is that approach for you? Because he talked about it being... You know, he's not here now, but I got the impression that Brand's approach, right, it, it almost, it seems quite lonely. He likes to work on his own. You know, what way, is that a similar process for you? What is your writing process or do you have a conscious 
process for sitting down to write for stuff for screen? My process is slow. Um, I sort of go through very long periods of not writing. Um, I could say now that I don't have the drive to be, uh, you know, a focused writer. Um, so that, I mean, that's probably where producing made it easier in that sense to be working in film. Um, I don't know if I can work too much with other people on my own stuff. It sort of, it, it varies. I mean, I know Leo and I, we tried to, we, we, actually sat down and we were like we have so much in common taste wise um and you know how we would get to somewhere like visually we're talking about all the different stuff and so we thought why don't we actually try and come up with a story together and um we literally got 25 minutes in and I remember sitting in his kitchen and just looking at him being like we we have mutual tastes in the end goal but um getting there is so different you know he would go one direction I could play it another um so yeah, I think it really depends. I, I quite like developing other people's projects because I'm removed from them. Yeah. You know, I don't have a personal attachment saying, I think it should be this. A lot of the time, if I'm working with someone, you know, if you're the writer, I try to go, okay, well, what is it you're trying to say with this scene? And then I'll throw suggestions out there, you know, and if it sticks, it sticks, and if it doesn't, it's not my story. Um, I think when I was doing script in uni, they they instilled in us quite a structured mm-hmm. method, um, which... It's it's very useful, but it's also a bit flawed. I think, um, you know, it literally became the do the scene by scene by scene, break, full breakdown of your story, which is is fine. And to be honest, it makes it a hell of a lot easier when it comes to actually writing it because you're redraft, you're almost redrafting before you write the dialogue, which is the easy bit. But it feels like you're doing your story from scratch over and over again that way sometimes. Whereas I know others like to sit and map out. You know, it's like spider spider diagrams or you know, they come up with lines of dialogue or they come up with something about a character first. I, I need to know the story. And then it all kind of branches out from there. See, like, I'm the person who always kind of says to kind of, let's have an idea shower and we'll all get wet. That's what <laughs> that's what I kind of go for. That's kind of, that's for my days of management within home base. But say no more than that. One thing, just on that note, because, I mean, you mentioned earlier you kind of, you met Leo when he was 16. You've worked with him on numerous projects. I know you've worked with him recently. How has that relationship kind of over those years changed, evolved? You worked with him when he was 16, he's now 24. How have you seen him evolve as a filmmaker? I think probably just mainly more confidence. He always sort of knows what he wants from a story point of view. So it's just in the execution. He's more sure of what he wants to do. And I think like pretty much any of us, that when you've done it once and it's either worked or it hasn't, you learned from it for the next time so it's either quicker the next time or you do something different the next time so I think it's just been that sort of transition over the years as well Now I know I've talked to Leo in the past about Braxton Butcher I don't think I've ever really sat down and talked to you about that so I mean it's been screened here for Cinema Day at the Strand Art Centre next week so tell me a little bit about from your side of things how that feature came about and kind of your lasting memories of working on that project God yeah that was yeah, uh, I was. I don't even know how to like start that one. Leo had wrote Braxton uh, as the Braxton Murders, I think when he was fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, and he tried to shoot it twice himself, which is a crazy feat. I mean, got the first short that I directed. I, you know, the stress 
suffice to say, it, or, you know, easy to say, it hit. So uh, to try and do the feature, I mean, I remember seeing the trailer actually before I, I think it was before I actually knew Leo. Um, Aiden showed me it on Facebook and or sent me a link and it was slick and it was impressive looking. So to know, you know, the 16 year old done this, that was even better. Did you not just kind of go secretly, kind of go, he's 16, bastard? Oh, no, not secretly, out loud. <laughs> but I remember though, when we'd been working together a while and he just kept bringing it up every so often and then I think he brought it up again one day and I just was a bit blunt and said look just do it or let it go <laughs> you know you've talked about it that much you just you need to get out of the way or you need to you know just let it lie and he had two I think he went to a concert in Dublin he was staying over in a hotel and I don't think he went to the concert I think he sat and redrafted the entire script and made it a bit more modern it needed to be you know updated in that sense and that was that he was like right I'm doing this next and he started talking to me I remember he rang me up and he was talking about you know so we did a feature and we did this this and this and I was just like Jesus okay how how the hell are we gonna do a feature you know we've only done so many shorts we hadn't done anything funded at that point and I sort of sort of tried to rack through my limited knowledge of how to secure any sort of funding and so I said to him okay, well, we could maybe try and even go for a bit of development money and we could try and maybe work on the script and do this, this and this and maybe we could do like a teaser or we could do such and such and then he sort of cut me off and he went, I'm thinking this summer. I think we shoot the movie this summer. And that was 20, that was, yes, winter, spring 2014. And then I went, no, don't be stupid. You can't do that. And then I think we were on the phone again later that night and I was just like, right, okay, if, if you're going to do it, here's what you need to do. And so, yeah, we kind of went from there. We ended up, we did, um, he did a lot of passes of the script. We got a lot of actors, very, very kindly donated, uh, gave up their night to sit with us in, uh, I think it was Tony's Studio 11. And we did a full read through um, and I timed it and I sat beside Leo with a copy of the script and I could feel him twitching and glaring at me every so often because I would be writing things throughout the script uh, and making notes. Um, but yeah, so we we divvied our parts and we just did a full run of it. I think I have a few clips uh, on a Dropbox somewhere. But that really, really helped because we were able to... We we saw what, you know, what got a laugh, what didn't get a laugh. I mean, it's hard to scare someone when you're sitting in a, like a live read like that in really informal environment. But maybe things felt like it was dragging a wee bit. So yeah, it just sort of went through things like that. So we started... It was actually ended up a bit tricky timing. We were in the middle of auditions and I got the job as production coordinator on Survivalist. Um, and to be honest, that was a step up for me. Uh, I I think my the previous film I'd worked on was as production assistant on Shooting for Socrates. Mm-hmm. Um, so I couldn't really afford to be passing it up, especially for a project that we, you know, we didn't know where it was really going. And we we'd sort of went Indian, not with the wrong mindset we just we hadn't really thought long term in terms of we're making a feature what are we going to do with it so but we continued on with the auditions um leo took the reins on producing on that uh through the rest of the prep because i had started uh survivalist so i had and we were shooting up in ballymena as well and then i remember so like i mean i'd wrapped survivalist and we were filming uh we were still filming so we were and i'd sort of been like in and out um of that period so i mean that's where we had people like Amber Bulans and Jim McMorrow who were just phenomenal to have um, help pick up a lot of slack in terms of sourcing locations and costumes and picking up actors and things like that. Um, they were very much more than 
the credited role of first aid or assistant camera or anything like that. And yes, we we eventually wrapped um, after I think it was maybe a two week stint of shooting the finale, the the final act mm-hmm. of the film, which is my favorite bit in the film. Actually, I think it really like it really stands out personally. And we entered post, which was a crazy, crazy long process um, and involved many, many reshoots. Some made it into the film. We had a couple of rewrites. You actually, through the reshoots, you saw a bit of a, an evolution in just how we moved as well. You know, the team knew each other inside out at that point. Matthew McGuigan, like, he just knew exactly what he was doing. He he was the cinematographer. He's also Leo's cousin. I think them two, Leo and I have a shorthand on set. You know, we fire through things a lot quick, uh, very quickly. I think technically they have the same and so uh, they would work through things quite quickly as well. So eventually we actually ended up having, we had a, a cut, I think was over, it was over two hours long and we ended up having to, we actually hadn't even shot all the reshoot scenes as well. Uh, we'd one scene that we never got to and it was just, it was going to be this crazy big sequence. We had to cut it out completely. Um, probably would have been the gory sequence of the film as well, which Leo was devastated about. But we, it just, we had so much that we needed to try and cut down that it just, it wouldn't have been made sense to, to fit it in. And we hired a screen, Odeon, and we got a bunch of friends, uh, some family and crew in that hadn't seen the film. And we said, look, this is a rough cut. There's VFX shots that haven't been done. There's blood to go in here. You're going to, you know, there's no great and dodgy sound. But you know this is purely from a story point of view um and we got some really great notes so we did and that then implemented to the final cut which i should actually also point out leo was cutting um so yeah he was crazy crazy hands-on across the post-production side um unfortunately for him he's trained himself uh, very well in the technical side of filmmaking can i ask and it's just been in my head just when you mentioned kind of going off and working on the survivalist which is a film i I do have mixed feelings about it, and that's not, I'm not going to put you on the spot and talk about that. I think I, I love it from a technical point of view. I just find it really hard to watch because it's a really tough film. During that process, you'd went off and you were then working on that. Then how did, when you came back from that, I mean, did that experience and working on The Survivalist then shape your approach to those, that research and working on the rest of Braxton? I don't know so much on the rest of Braxton. Um, I mean, I, I hadn't been completely removed from it but obviously you know we were filming up there and living up there during the week so uh, I could only be on set so much each week um, but at the same time it would have been right for me to try and come in mm. how many weeks into shooting and impose suddenly a new method because I'd seen other people do it um, we still had to bear in mind that you know something like Survivalist is a feature with you know an over over a million pound budget mm. Braxton was completely unfunded it was out of our pockets me um so to try and say you need to do this, this and this, there are certain things, um, you know, just I think more common sense. If you're trying to watch costs this way or, you know, this is a health and safety thing, like those sort of things you need to be aware of. But that should be a basic um, acknowledgement, not so much just from survivalist. Um, it was great for me to work on because uh, I got to work with um there's a few in the production office that were, were just fantastic and Louise Gallagher um, and Katie Jackson in particular and so just working with them seeing how they worked in different roles and you learned a lot from them which you can t- always take on to other jobs whether I'm working as a freelance or you know leading the project as a producer and then that brings us then to the films the, the films open night at the Belfast Film Festival I think well I think the film had been screened 
outside of Ireland, if I remember, this is going back from my chat with, with Leo, the film had been screened outside of Ireland at a few horror-centric kind of festivals. Then the opening night at the Belfast Film Festival, I remember talking to Leo about this. I can't remember what specifically we were talking about. saying he just couldn't enjoy it at the opening night. I mean, was that the same for you? Kind of sold out, I think it had to be moved to a bigger screen from memory. Your Your memories of that night at the Belfast Film Festival, I think it was part of the NI Independence section. Yeah. No, I remember Leo and how he felt that way and I completely understood. I think he enjoyed it more as the movie went on because it got the laughs in the right places, which is always amazing to hear. Um, but I know next week he's going to struggle. Maybe not as much, but it's still going to hurt him to sit and watch through until he hears maybe that first laugh or that first jumper or gasp, whatever it is. Um, it wasn't quite the same for me, which sounds really awful, but I think I do because it wasn't a story that I created. You're just an awful person, Margaret. Yeah, well, I'm a wee bit removed from it in that sense, to be honest. I've sat in a room and watched, um, you know, with people, a movie that I've directed, and it's it's horrible. Mm. It's absolutely, it's just a horrible experience um, because they're waiting for you to, ri- you're, you're waiting for them, sorry, to rip apart something that mm. you've created. Um, as producer... I mean, I had some input, but it wasn't really a project that I wanted to put cr- like a crazy amount of creative input in just because Leo knew what he was doing and the story was there. It wasn't one that needed it. And I don't really like to be a producer that stands over their director. You don't I, see yourself like as a Roger Corman kind of-esque style producer? I don't I don't want to be. I don't, I don't like it. You know, I, um, I, there needs to be a certain amount of... It, it's a bit tricky. There needs to be a lot of trust mm. that... Your writer director knows where you know where the story is going. Um, well, your writer, I mean, that should be in place before you're on set. Um, your director, I mean, if it comes to it, this is the tricky thing with producing that if it comes to it, you need to be able to pull them, um, which I don't like doing. But you know, there's been once or twice where I have in the past, um, and it's maybe just it's not a case of where I'm saying I don't like how you shot this, but it's refocus on what you're doing at that point you need to get this scene or you need to do this this and this or you know um and it's maybe from a logistical point of view so with that in mind though i mean with braxton when it comes to the screenings no it was a great night because i there's nothing about the film that made me go oh this isn't Mm. this isn't gonna work um you know i'd ever faith that people were gonna enjoy it i think everyone in the room knew that you know it was it was a great cry a home cry is always going to be the best you've got a lot of people and they're supporting you and Nobody wants you to fail. They're not going to start nitpicking for the sake of it. There are things in the movie that maybe aren't perfect, but you know we made that film for all in all about four grand. So I mean, I I think it more than holds up. I don't think it looks like a, a four grand movie, which you know is less than a lot of the short films locally are being made for. I know you know there is, and it's not to move away from Brax. I know there's another production here locally you were involved with in a production capacity, which was Hostage to the Devil, which. The thing that intrigues me with that is, you know, the fact that it, it, it then went to work with, with Netflix. I mean, what were they like? Because I know Braxton Butcher went on to get a DVD release. And I mean, I'm intrigued with kind of the dealings with securing a, a DVD release compared to a Netflix release. They kind of, for someone who's a complete outsider here, what, is the, what are the complexities and what are the kind of differences of working for what is essentially kind of in one shape or form, it's kind of a very similar medium, but another shape or form, it's it's completely different. With hostage, so we didn't have we, we, well, we had no direct connection with Netflix. What happened was that myself, 
uh, Marty Stalker, the director, and Chris Patterson, who's the producer. Um, we were at the Berlin Isle Film Market and by 2016, I think it was. And we had our meeting with our sales agent, who was at the time called Content in our Q uh, media. And yeah, it, it was quite, it was a funny moment. We we went in, we had a meeting, um, we pitched the film. The guy said, stop you right there. We'll, we want the film. And we all froze because that wasn't something we were used to it's it's very different going to the market with a finished film um as opposed to pitching a concept um or even partially shot to be honest and i think i broke the silence by just going great <laughs> because what else could you say at that point somebody wanted to buy your movie um so yeah i mean we were we were, it was amazing when we came out of that meeting what happened with hostage was netflix have secret screenings so I don't know if the sales agent set it up or if Netflix sell it, set it up and invite movies in. I have no idea how it works. Um, I just know that Hostage was screened at one of their secret screenings, I think, in LA. And essentially how it works is if they like your movie, great. And if they don't, nobody finds out that your movie got knocked back from Netflix, which is quite good in that, in that sense, to be honest. Uh, so thankfully, yeah, they did. They liked it. And what had happened was we had licensed the movie to the sales agent and then they licensed it out to Netflix. It was a bit of a tricky one. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I'm not the, one of the lead producers on Hostage, although I worked on it for a Take long time. Take all the credit, Margaret, though. It was all me. But Rachel Lysett, who's the one of the Irish producers, she was heavy um, going back and forth with contract negotiations in terms of what the sales agent can get away with spending and... Just, I mean, it's only in my head. I mean, so it's, is it the sales agents then? Because, I mean, I know myself when we've tried to do some screenings, I've dealt with sales agents in the past. Um, but that's kind of a different thing again. But it's the sales agent then that takes that to Netflix in, in these kind of secret screenings. So, as I say, are you then, you've kind of said like you're not aware then if it's screened secretly with Netflix or they're in the room, that then if they decide not to take it up, you're 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 never kind of in the know that it was rejected by Netflix, or is it something that you you know that is it something you agree on? Do you want to put this forward for potential secret screening? It's just kind of again, this is me just kind of sitting here intrigued to how that kind of process yeah. works. No, the sales agent rang us. Um, they rang uh, Chris and they said to him, you know, this is coming up. We're we'd like to put hostage in front. You happy enough and. Chris at that point went it's Netflix of course <laughs> pretty much and so so as the filmmaker you're aware well I assume that's that's common but uh, we were um, we were informed of what was going on which was great but with we had licensed to the sales agent they get uh, you know their own budget of they can spend so much on maybe a trailer or posters or so forth um, promoting your film and then when it starts to make money their expenses come back first before anyone else gets. So the producers had to go into um, negotiations on capping their budget. That was really useful for me because at the same time we had, as the one whilst they were negotiating their contract, we had just signed Braxton. Okay. So I was learning from one one month and putting it into practice the next. So I was able to start capping and negotiating. Probably annoyed them more than they were expecting for the size of our film. But I realised that, I mean, Leo and I had always kind of went in with the mindset we were never going to make money off Braxton. It was never it was never that um, goal. That wasn't why we did it in the first place. Um, we got to make our first feature on our terms, which is rare uh, for a lot of filmmakers. And we're proud of it as well. You know, it's it's not lock it away in a cupboard or, you know, somewhere. But at the same time, we just thought, well, we may as well be smart. There's no point giving them unlimited rain because just on the off chance something crazy could happen, we would never see 
anything from it. Um, so yeah, that's I mean that was how that sort of um correlated for me. You know, what it was literally one month on hostage and the next put into practice on Braxton. At what point? And this is only because I know we've kind of touched on this a few times. It was screened at the Belfast Film Festival as Braxton. I know it as Braxton, and then when it's done on DVD release, it's Braxton Butcher. At what point does that come up? Was there a reason for that? And I think I remember vaguely talking to Leo about this at the time, because I think a couple of late night um, Facebook messages was sent to me about this, because I remember him showing me the artwork for Braxton Butcher. But at what point did that come up? And I mean, why was that brought up as an issue? Um, it was the sales agents that brought it up. Um, and there's two different companies, one for American Canada and then one for UK and Ireland. Um but they basically said that Braxton isn't scary as a name. Um, the way that it sort of runs is that um, they, they said Braxton isn't scary as a name. So that's why you have, you know, Stab, Scream, Halloween, mm. you know, things that have those horror connotations. But then they were also like, they. I think one of the reasons they, they went with Braxton Butcher because it's actually in the movie. We do refer yeah. to um, our killer as the Braxton Butcher at one point, which made sense. But... What really grated with Leo especially was that one of the reasons they wanted to keep it BB was so that's higher up the title list. Okay. Uh, which, yeah, okay, it's it's practical from their point of view. It grates with us a bit creatively because we're like, really, our title is going to be deemed by how high it places on the, in the alphabetical order. But, um, you know, they came back with Braxton Butcher and we were like, right, okay, look, we're going to have to relent at some point in this. And it actually makes sense to the movie. It's in the trailer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's where that one came about from. No, I've always just been intrigued, you know. And I know we've kind of touched on that, I mean, and I think through talking there, I mean, this was one of the questions, and I kind of feel we've already answered it, but from those experiences, what did you take that you've now, that you've now kind of put in into use now as a producer, director, writer? Um, I mean, I think a lot of those experiences are tied especially to producing. I think it's there's been something new every time like every single time um, working on something with I mean the size of Braxton we didn't have any funding but I still was adamant I needed to know how much we were spending you know we had part time jobs that were paying for this and things like that and you're running around there's a lot of costs that would have went just unnoticed you know stupid things um, and it was just money managed in that sense after that I produced FAR which was my first funded project and it had a budget of 30,000 euro um, and normally you start smaller on funded shorts but that was the first fund one that we got so it was getting the ins and outs of the insurance to the legals to the budget to you know that more of that side of it. Um, I know we touched on this earlier on but that difference do you ever allow yourself that difference of mindset whenever you're doing something like Braxton that wasn't funded or you have to be, not lean wouldn't be the word, but efficient, when then you, you do get a project that's then funded, do you ever allow yourself, and not indulging, but kind of that kind of, there must surely be a different kind of thought process that's kind of coming in. Maybe maybe more a case of kind of, relax, not relaxation is probably not, not the word, but maybe more confidence when something, you know that there is funds there for a project. There's kind of the, the risks. Maybe I'm speaking kind of complete mumbo-jumbo, but... I'm only asking, it's that idea of like when you work from two different projects, one that's one that's not funded, one that is funded, is, I know that I know you're going to tell me, no, James, of course there's not, but is is there ever any that kind of that sense of that in, in the back of your head, that mindset? 
Um, there's a difference. I just say it's the other way around from what you said. Funding doesn't make it more relaxing. Money creates problems. It's really, I, I mean, I, I, the thing I hate the most when it comes to funding is having to negotiate fees with people. And I, I mean, it's it's so obvious why you'd have to do it. Um, and I completely understand anyone having, you know, in, in that situation who are negotiating for themselves. It's just with a short, there's no money. Like there's still, there's still effectively no money. There's when you think that, okay, I need to pay somewhere between fifteen to twenty members of crew. Uh, what maybe three to seven cast the last one that we did uh, Leo and I did was period so the costumes and the dressing and locations were even more complex there your insurance your equipment things like that um, and then you can't pay everybody in Haribo you definitely can't pay everyone in no, Haribo I, I've seen <laughs> I have seen some filmmakers that have used you know boxes upon boxes of Haribo I will not name them here now but I've seen you know producers and directors who've used just, just Haribo as their means to making sure that you know they will keep people you know who are giving up their time etc just to keep them happy and in a, in a sugar induced kind of almost coma um no i have seen that actually a few times um no i mean yeah i think when you've got funding you're also have to remember you're um, answering to a lot of other people um and you're delivering and i've had a few times where i've been like right you know i've had to step in and come down a bit more heavy-handed than i would have liked purely because if I don't, we won't deliver this. Um, and I've never not delivered, and it's you know generally not my intention to start then. Um, by the same token, I mean like yeah, my last unfunded short. So I sort of did two shorts back to back. I was sort of in poster at the same time. I'd done one finding Shakespeare. That I'd wrote and directed. Um, and it was funded, and uh, I mean it was great. I had a great team around me, so I did. Um, it was tough though so it was I mean just for the, the scale of it you know we I was working it was a children's short you know we had to get a lot of extras in um, I was still sort of double dipping into the production side of it as well as directing which I don't like doing um, a lot of people like it I just like I just prefer to do one or the other just because I, I actually enjoy it more just being able to focus on one but then the one before that I'd done which was a period two-hander um, The Hangman I mean, that was a three-day shoot, completely unfunded. A lot of the same people, actually. And it was a very relaxing shoot. I mean, what we were doing, the scale of it, was a lot smaller. I didn't have 30 kids running around a building um, and then trying to get them back for the next day as well, <laughs> which is um, the tricky thing. Haribo. Haribo, yeah. Oh, for them, it was chicken nuggets, but we ran out of them. That was the problem. But, yeah, I mean, that was it was really relaxed and it was just... I was able to focus... Because there was, I think, I mean, I was producing it but uh, with Leo, but there was maybe less to manage and I was just able to go so um, straight on the directing that I think I enjoyed that um, a bit more as well. Which, you know, there's there's things I know I want to come back to in that, but I know you have to get home at a certain point. And I kind of I think you've kind of preempted me there. You know, what are the projects you're working on now? You know, what are the things that we have upcoming? I know there's a couple of projects you have that are out on kind of the festival circuit at the minute. Tell me a little bit about those and your kind of involvement with them. There's a couple. Um, so the two that I directed, Hangman and Finding Shakespeare, they're both out um, just doing festival submissions at the minute. The same with Invention, which I produced uh, and Leo directed. It's uh, We actually found out it's just got into Aesthetica film festival so it's going to be going out to that in November. I'm working on with Causeway, through Causeway Pictures. Leo and I are working with Marty Stalker. We're doing a 
well, we're, we're developing a documentary series mm-hmm. called Trace. So that's about um, not the happiest of stories. Uh, there was six women. Well, we're, we're focusing on a particular six women who went missing in the Dublin Wicklow area throughout the 90s. Just vanished. No no one caught, no bodies found, anything like that. Um, so we're working with a couple of the original investigators um, to uh, develop a series on this. Um, we've shot a couple of interviews, so we're hopefully going to be pitching that quite soon. And that's in development with NI Screen. And then, yeah, there's kind of a, a range of stuff. I'm working on a couple of shorts at the minute and redrafting a feature that I wrote because I think I get a bit antsy if I haven't shot something myself after a while and I'm starting to get there. So um, I'm going to put a few things in. Well, I'm going to put um, something into the next shorts call and, yeah, see how that goes. We'll be developing um, other stuff in the meantime because Leo's attached to a couple of projects as well in Causeway. How do you find that festival submission process? You know, I mean, as someone... Bandaflix, we've I know not on the scale of everything. We've we've opened our own festival and we've seen kind of shorts coming in from all over the world. Some that don't even meet the criteria. For you, when you're at the submitting end, how do you find it? Do you have kind of do you go in with your kind of say your cherry pick of these are the festivals we want to get into, or do you have kind of like looking for films that meet the kind of the themes motifs of those festivals? How do you find that process? Weary. Um, I don't. I'll be honest. I don't think that we've cracked festivals. We've had we've we've had a good run with a few projects that we have. Um, you know, Time and Again, for example. Time and Again had actually a bit of a slower start. We went for a couple of festivals and we weren't really getting. And then um, we just had a run where we got into uh, a lot of festivals and we got an online release with um, Aiden had pushed that. So we had uh, with Cinephilia and Beyond and. Uh, I think Film School Rejects as well and then it's it's still going there's been a couple more screenings since One of the things I'm intrigued with is is it a case of is it just do you need like one or two acceptances and then that kind of gets the ball rolling or is it completely kind of luck of the draw I'm intrigued because I mean if you go to a short and you say submit you say you get knocked back or is it a case well my short is already screened here here and here does that then, I know it's probably a really silly question to ask because it's probably a really obvious answer you're going to give me, but does that then, if you have had a few shorts that have been accepted elsewhere, when you then say, right, I want to be, I want to screen this at your festival, it's already been screened here, so there's a certain kind of, you know, benchmark of quality that that we've reached? I, I actually don't know. I have no idea. Margaret, um, that's why I asked you the question. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I mean... It's a strange one because, I mean, I've seen films at festivals that I thought were amazing. And I was like, why did that not win? Or I've, by the same token, I've, saw, I've seen ones that didn't get into the festival. And I thought, why did it not even get in there? And then I've, and I've seen some that have won. And, you know, sometimes it's a political factor. It's got the star power, things like that. Sometimes it's very deserving. Um, Invention, for example. Invention placed, I mean, it was, it was brilliant to find. Um, we placed in the top five, the final five of the indie shorts film festival in Indi- Indiana. It's an Oscar qualifying festival, so it was amazing to get that far. Now, the film that won was a refugee film. And Leo was at the festival, and now we sort of had this running joke that the refugee maybe is going to win because maybe I shouldn't say that, but there's it's a hot topic, and there's so many people making refugee movies. And I've seen a few by filmmakers where I, I would bet money it is to be festival bit. But, you know... And one of the things that the um, 
festival directors or their, their programming team said was that they received so many shorts about refugees. That one stood out because, and they had legitimate reason. And even Leo was like, you know, that was an amazing movie that deserved to win. So, I mean, that was really endearing to hear because, okay, yes, we were sort of going, well, it would have been lovely to win. But we lost to a film that won because, um, you know, it was more... Bloody refugees. Well, uh, apparently, I mean, I, I would be quite keen to see how they did this, but apparently you're about 10 minutes, well, no, about eight minutes into the film before you actually find it he's a refugee. Okay. I was like, okay, well, that's that's great because that means it's not really about him being a refugee, it's about this character. Okay. And that's a different spin on it. Um, whereas I've, I've seen in the last couple of months a couple of shorts that I just felt were a bit hollow because they were using the... You know they were they were using it as yeah, they were. So have I. I yeah. have to admit, I have I have I've seen the same thing. Um, but they're they're aiming for something specific with festivals, and they've placed in a couple of festivals, yeah. so maybe they're onto something that I'm missing. For me, I, I just the film has to. It's kind of what I said earlier. It has to have the story and it has to have the emotion. If it gets in the festivals, great. If when it doesn't, it sucks. But if you didn't have that thing that you believed in the film initially, what was the point in making it? Just listen to you there, Margaret. I mean, and this is going to sound like a really silly question. You know, the digital revolution has clearly really aided filmmakers like yourself, like Leo. Like you weren't kind of, I, I maybe speaking on an attorney, you weren't kind of film with the old days with, with 35 mil. How much is that, the kind of, the digital kind of revolution, the fact, I mean, I, here at Bandflix, we use Film Freeway. Which I mean, I mean, for submitting festivals, I don't know, again, it's one of those, you know, obvious answer, Jim. But I mean, how... Is that something that really comes into your mind when you kind of think of the fact that we have that that ability now to submit to festivals anywhere where I can't imagine, you know, what that was like maybe 30, you know, 40 years ago? Because shorts, you know, they have been around for a long, long time. It's just become slightly easier now, I would say, technically to make them, but also to distribute them as well. And I suppose as well on that note, you have, we've mentioned earlier on, like Netflix. Northern Irish filmmakers have definitely availed of that. You know, we have had... Hostage to the Devil, there was Bad Day for the Cut, I know, and I'm, I'm nearly certain there's a few more locally produced productions that have ended up on Netflix. That digital revolution, is it something you consciously think of, of how that has benefited you as a filmmaker? Yeah, oh, I mean, it has massively. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who prefer old school, even down to how they shoot it on film, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of like the script, so how I shoot it. I mean, yes, I wanted to technically look, yeah. you know, in maybe a certain way, but that travels from how you shoot it into production to, yes, how you get it out there. I mean, I remember it was only a couple of years ago, we were still having to send out DVDs to film submissions, and I would be annoying Leo, being like, sorry, can you bring me another one? Um, and it was the biggest nuisance. So um, without a, when Without a Box finally, I think Without a Box copied Film Freeway. I think Film Freeway got in there first by saying, upload your film, but you upload your screener, which was amazing. Um, and just saved you so much time, effort, and again, money between sending out all these DVDs. Um, so no, it's helped loads, and then Vimeo as well. But you know, by the same token, I mean, I don't know how many shorts we have, all password protected, <laughs> sitting on Vimeo that you can send out. I mean, I think I actually just put up one. Uh, well, we've got time and again now sitting on Vimeo. I mean, it's not password protected; it's there to be watched and. The same, actually, with my other one, Waiting Game. It's it's no longer password protected. It's sitting to be watched, and you know, it's just they're out there, so they are. And websites like that allow for you to sort of put it in front of people in a different at way. At what anyway. point? Again, I'm I'm apologising. I've lightning bulb no, moments, no. Margaret. At what point do you decide then when you have something up in Vimeo, 
And I wanted to ask Brian this because I know the Monday Club is now up freely available on YouTube. At what point, not protecting, at what point do you kind of say, right, I want to keep this private, I want to keep this for screener access and, you know, it's going to be password protected. At what point do you say, it's probably in a way it's kind of like almost finally letting go and you say, right, it's not going to be password protected, it's just there. As Brian said, it's like, and, I, and I don't mean this way, but Brian always kind of put that analogy in my head and it stuck. All his previous mistakes, everything he's done, all the things that's good and his mistakes, they're all up online. At what point do you decide when you have stuff that's password protected, do you say, right, no, let's just have it readily available? Is it down to just even just kind of that idea of the festival circuit or in kind of in still submitting or is is there any other reasons for it? I think the festival circuit's a good timeline. You know, it's like, are we going to put this out anymore? I mean, with time and again, um, Aiden really followed the likes of Cinephilia and Beyond, those websites. He loved those websites. He's been reading them for years. They've got some, in fairness, they've got some amazing interviews. So when he realized they did shorts, that was a real driving force. Like, this will be an amazing way to wrap it up. Um, you know, and a great way to, you know, to put it out there live. Um, I mean, I only recently put waiting game up there public um because i mean i shot that in 2014 like i stopped with the festival um circuit a long time ago but it kind of and you know it's great when it got into a couple of festivals but by the same token i think it's also it's kind of like the hard thing of being able to sit and watch a movie with other people it's kind of hard to put it out there um so far i played a brian from the Naughty club i didn't realize it was on youtube um but uh, yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard to put it up there. I think that's maybe a part of it. At least with time and again, it was sort of taken out of our hands. Like Cinefilia and Beyond wanted it. Great, that's a platform we're not going to say no to. Off it goes. When you then, how do you feel? Because it's going to tie up nicely. Because so you said, you mentioned wrapping up. You know, we have to wrap up at some point. And kind of the last question is, like, how have you changed? Or do you feel you've changed as a, as a filmmaker working within the industry from when you first set out to where you are now? Looking back at that short, when you watched it again, I mean, how does that make you feel? Can you, I mean, it's kind of going back to like Leo on opening night at Braxton at the film festival. You know, you'll always look at something you've made yourself very differently and you'll always be your own worst critic. But can you sit back and, and look at things, I suppose definitely you could, in a producer's capacity, but as a director... Do you ever sit back and say, I'm, I'm really proud of that? Or are you always going to be, you know, ever so slightly a little bit overcritical of yourself? I think I think it's maybe a bit of all of the above. I mean, with Waiting Game, Waiting Game's 20 minutes long. I could easily cut another five minutes out of it now. Um, but you do need to let it go. Um, originally, it was something like 28 minutes long. You know, it was a slow pace, slow burner of a short. Um so, I mean, I could be watching and I could see those five minutes again that'll come out. But at the same time, that one was actually quite a nice one because um, I remember Leo was the editor on it. And I remember him, me and Aiden, um, just watching start to finish of the close to final cut. And um, it was a nice feeling. It wasn't actually, I'm cringing. It was, I'm really pleased with how that's turned out, you know. Sam McDermott shot it and he, was, he did a fantastic job. He was a cinematographer and the guys around me and then, you know, Sean Blaney was in the lead and just the, the cast, everyone sort of came together and it wasn't bar our noisy gym next door. It wasn't nuts and there were there were a few funny, a few, few very funny moments on that set so it was a nice one to sort of look back and then also to see the end product and go, I'm actually really proud of this one. And then that brings me to, you know, my last question. You know, as I've alluded to, 
How do you feel you have changed as a filmmaker from when you first set out in the industry to where you are now? How do you feel you've changed within that time? Mm, that's a tricky one. I think I'm maybe a bit more... I mean, I'm more aware of a lot of things. I mean, that sounds really vague, but as a producer, I'm more aware of what's needed. So you get through things quicker. Um, you know, I remember the first time I was working with children and child licenses came up and I was like, what? What is this? I need a license. And now it's instinctively like, okay, so I need that. We'll, we can do this. I already have the form. We can get on with that. Um, we need more chicken nuggets. Yeah, we need... Oh, you do. You need chicken goujons and chips and they're happy. Um... Uh, but then at the same time, as a director, I think I've got better technically. Mm -hmm. I have a lot to learn technically. And I've been very lucky that I've had, I've worked with cinematographers. I mean, Michael McReynolds shot my last two shorts and he's fantastic because he's very collaborative. You know, he listens to what you want. He takes it in. Sometimes it doesn't work. and But he's very good at going, okay, if you want to get this and he knows what the end goal is, how about doing it this way? And there was a couple of lovely shots that uh, my last one in particular I, I love movement and yeah. he he really worked with me to like hit those beats without that stress factor but I also learn from him and by the same token as a producer you know Aidan Goff's been the cinematographer and a few things I've produced Ryan Kernahan was producer on a short children I produced watching them how they interact with our team you know they're not doing it for, for anyone watching they're just getting on with it but I mean that was you know you learn from that as well so I think it's just it's kind of practice makes perfect the further you go down the line of something, the better you'll get at it or you'll encounter something new and you'll learn for next time. Okay. Well, you've definitely put me off going to see Christopher Robin. Although I still am going to go see it. What can I say? But uh, thank you very much for your time. Good luck with your future projects. And we look forward to the screening of Braxton here at Strand next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that pretty much brings this episode to a close. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe however you get your podcast and fix to make sure you never miss another episode of the Bantflix podcast. We have new episodes every Thursday and Saturday. And if you're a newcomer to the podcast, you can find our complete back catalogue on our website.